Man in the boondocks Lord have mercy can't help being Man in the boondocks Hello and welcome to Bad in the Boondocks <laughs> No, I'm just kidding. Welcome to Bad in the Boondocks. As always, I am Stan. And I'm Drew. And Tucker is here today. Just to let you know, our new podcast website is up. It is live. And that you can go to it at badintheboondocks.com. That's com, not cum. Mm-hmm. And there you can, everything that you need is there. You can get in touch with us. You can read about us, read a little history about us. You can listen to episodes. You can subscribe. You can do anything but we're about to get into today's two stories all right all right laddie do you want to go first all right then i'm not very good at scottish but it's not very good at all actually oh i was trying to do chinese no you weren't (laughs) (laughs) i'm just kidding (laughs) your chinese is actually pretty good mine's trash (laughs) <laughs> I can't do it. Okay, um, so you're going to go first? I reckon. It kind of looked like you were having a stroke right then. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Right. Okay, I'll go, I'll go first. So you, you want to go first? I'll go first. You go first. Okay. Um, my, the person I'm doing is Luke Woodham. Ew. Why? It's supposed to be good. You're doing Luke Woodham? Yeah. Uh, shut shut your mouth. God, you're slow on the uptake. Be quiet. He was born on February 5th, 1981 in Rankin County, Mississippi. In what county? R- Rankin. How do you spell that? R-A-N-K-I-N. It was Rank, wasn't it? It sure was. Rankin, that county. <laughs> yeah. On October 1st, 1997, Luke Woodham, who was 16 at the time. That's a very large gap. Well, nothing well, happened he had to from the grow time. up. No, nothing happened. Oh. Well, he brutally beat and stabbed his own mother, Mary Woodham, to death. No, he didn't. Yes, he did. His motivation behind the killing is unknown, and he said in court that he didn't remember ever doing it. After killing her, he drove his mother's car to Mississippi's Pearl High School. Did he have a driver's license? I assume... I mean, I would think not. Why? I don't know. Who knows? Back in those days, we had driver's licenses at 16. Whatever, you know. He was wearing an orange jumpsuit. Because that would be illegal if he didn't have a driver's license. Well, a lot of things that he did was illegal. I guess he didn't care. So, he was wearing an orange jumpsuit. So he was preparing for prison already. Orange is the new I black. actually I actually put that in my in my story. So he wow. was actually preparing for prison already. Whoa. Yeah. He was also wearing a trench coat. As as you do. But it wasn't as you do. raining. As you do. Yeah. He was get get your dog. You were supposed to hold him. I know, but he was he was starting to try to bite me so you're gonna continue fine 
He was also carrying a rifle in his hand. Did he have bullets in it? Yes. He walked into the school, shot and killed Lydia and his former girlfriend, Christina Maniffy. The band director was was standing five feet away from Do when he shot her. Before leaving, he managed to shoot and wound seven others. His intent was to drive off after the shooting and go to another school, which was Pearl Junior High School, to conduct another shooting. Before he got the chance to leave, the principal of the school, Joel Myrick, had went to his truck and retrieved a .45 caliber pistol. I don't think you're supposed to bring guns to school. Even if you're an administrator, I'm pretty sure it's not supposed to be in your car. Are you sure? I mean, it just doesn't seem safe. I mean, you can have a permit to carry a weapon in At schoolyard? Maybe not. There's usually signs so. that say no weapons allowed on the premises. That is true. Well, he then subdued... Wood but down. at least he had his this yeah, time. Yeah. And he demanded, why did you shoot my kids? And Woodham replied, I'm pretty sure that it was more. Why did you shoot my kids? <laughs> Woodham replied, Life is wrong me, sir. Before the shooting, he gave this letter he wrote to a friend. And now I'm going to read it. Okay. I'm not insane. I'm angry. I killed because people like me are mistreated every day. I did this to show society. Push us and we'll push back. All throughout my life, I was ridiculed, always beaten, always hated. Can you, society, truly blame me for what I do? Yes, you will. It was not a cry for attention. It was a cry for help. It was a scream in sheer agony saying that if you can't pry your eyes open, if I can't do it through pacifism, if I can't show you through the displaying of intelligence, then I will do it with a bullet. Deep bullet. On October 8, 1997, Grant Boyett, Delbert Shaw, Donald Brooks, Wesley Brownell, Daniel Thompson, and Justin Sledge were all arrested in suspicion of conspiring with Winham to commit the shooting. Winham said that Grant Boyett, his friend, invited him to join a satanic group called the Croth. The Croth? Yeah. That's an ugly name. I'm not very sure where that name comes from, but... Woodham goes on to say that Grant promised him that he could get his ex-girlfriend back or use black magic to get even on her. Woodham turned to Christianity after the conviction and wrote this letter to David Wilkerson. As they always yeah, do. An evangelical minister. A what? <laughs> an evangelical mis- oh. minister. Is that still how you say it? Sure. Evangelical. Just own it. Just own it. Minister. David, I receive your sermons through the mail. I am one of the school shooters. I'm the one they blame for starting it all off. On October 1st, 1997, I went into Pearl High School and killed two students and wounded seven. I also killed my mother before this. After I came to jail, I got saved. If there's any way that I can help with your ministry, I would love to. Maybe I could give you my testimony. I thought you were going to say testicles. (laughs) (laughs) I'll do anything to help. I look forward to your sermons each month. 
All right, now there are two separate trials for the mother and the school shooting. Whitam's lawyer argued that he was insane at the time of the killings, but the insanity defense was rejected. The trial for his mother was held on June 5, 1998, where he was found guilty for the murder and sent to life in prison. Oh, sorry. The second trial took place on June 12th, where he was also found guilty of two counts of murder and seven counts of attempted murder. He was sentenced to two life sentences and seven 20-year sentences for the attempted murder. He's now serving three life sentences and 140 additional years. He will not be eligible for parole until 2046. Winham is now serving his time at the Mississippi State Penitentiary. Now, as for Grant Boyer and Justin Sledge, they still faced two counts of being an accessory to commit murder. Boyer was convicted and sentenced to the Mississippi State Penitentiary at Parchment Boot Camp for six months and then five years of supervised probation, while Justin Sledge was sentenced to serve four months in reform school. Wow. Thank you. You're welcome. That was me clapping, not you, but... I said wow. Okay. If you turn that upside down, it's small. So that is your story? Mm -hmm. That is your story. That's all I've got. And you're sticking to it. That's all I've got. Mine's a little bit longer. Of course. As usual. <laughs> but mine is also for our listeners in the UK. Hip hip cherio, mate. All right. But this is, I think, got some Scottish, so I might do a little Scottish accent. Oh my gosh, no. <laughs> Just know this is a hick doing it, so, you know, mm-hmm. it's the best I can do. Do you know that teriyaki does not come from China? I did know that. And fried rice doesn't come from Japan. I did know that. Fried rice not come from Japan. <laughs> it come from China. But teriyaki, teriyaki come from China. No, it doesn't. Where does it come from? It comes from Japan. Oh. Teriyaki come from Japan. I can't do it. <laughs> that comes from Japan. Will you like pedico too? Yeah. You need pedicure. I tried to get you girl for air. They, they say, Oh, you look so good. You're so oh pretty. <laughs> okay. I am doing. Yeah. Who are you doing? My story Anyone is on. My story is on Robert Black. Robert Black. Never knew his parents. Tear. (laughs) When Jessie Hunter Black gave birth to her son on the 21st of April in 1947, she refused to put his father's name on the birth certificate. Maybe that was because she didn't know the father. Probably. But I don't know how she lives. Mm -mm. And Jessie... 24 years old and unmarried, earning a meager amount of money as a factory worker, 
was really in no position to care for an illegitimate baby. Still a no-no in 1947. Mm -hmm. Within days of Robert's birth, Jesse decided to have him fostered. Years later, Robert Black, by this time a man in his 40s, told psychologist Ray Wire, I don't know whether it was pressure from her parents or whether she just didn't want me. I don't know. I was fostered at six months old. Within the year Jesse had married, she and her husband, Francis Hall, were to have four children together, none of whom were told that they had a half-brother. And they immigrated to Australia, where Jesse died in 1982. I was born in 1982. Oh, really? Francis Hall's niece, Joyce Bonella, recalls that Jesse didn't like it to be generally known that she had had a child out of wedlock. She never told anyone who the father was. From the time that she gave Robert up, Jesse had never had any contact with her son. While Jesse was settling into married life, Robert was being cared for by his new family. Jack and Margaret Tulip were both in their 50s and had fostered children on several occasions previously. Robert had been born in Grangemouth, about 20 miles from Edinburgh. On the 1st of 4th. That's good, duh. I don't know what that means. What? 1st of 4th. I don't know, but that's good to get foster kids. Because there's too many in the system now, you know? And there are also a lot of foster parents that only get foster kids for the money and then don't spend it on the children and they're really mistreated. Well, that's true. But, I mean, instead of having more... Carrying on, Kids, the yeah. Tulips lived in King Lockleven near Glencoe in the West Highlands. Robert lived here for the next 11 years, the majority of which were spent in the care of Margaret, Margaret Tulip. As Jack died when Robert was just five years old, oh, no. Black claims to have no memory of him indeed. No memories at all before the age of five. Okay. Mm-hmm. To Ray Wire, which remember is a psychologist, this unusual memory block suggests the presence and repression of some sort of emotional or physical trauma that Black had been subjected to as an infant, maybe being given up. Probably. Probably at the hands of his foster father. So I guess yeah. that would be not right. <laughs> After all. Most of us can recall something, some vague impressionistic sense of who we were before we were five, says Wire. Big words. That's what Wire said. Okay. He's a psychologist. Okay. He's pretty smart. He can use words that are well, over two I, syllables. Well, I take psychology, so. Yeah. Okay. Although locals remember how Robert Black was frequently heavily bruised as a boy, Black himself cannot recall how he got these injuries. He recalls no abusive behavior from Jack, though he does remember how Margaret used to lock him in the house as a punishment for bad behavior. Or alternatively, pull down his trousers and underwear Mm -hmm. and spank him with a belt. 
I meant. At night, Robbie was scared that there was a monster under his bed waiting to get him and used to suffer from a recurring nightmare featuring a big, hairy monster <laughs> in a cellar full of water. When he awoke, he frequently found that he had wet the bed. Oh, no. Which provoked a beating. Really? Don't be too teeing in my bed. Have you wet the bed? No, I never went to bed. You did. Well. Yeah, I, you did. Yeah, I know that. Yeah, okay. But I meant. You know, you wet the bed at the age about like zero pillars do some. What, at like 12? No. No, if you'd still been wet in the bed now, we would have been, you could have slept outside. <laughs> <laughs> you could have been wearing good nights. Oh, yeah. I'm a big kid now. <laughs> <laughs> to his classmates at primary school, Robert. Or as they called him, Smelly Robbie Tulip. Oh, I mean, that's not that bad. Is remembered as having been an aggressive and slightly wayward boy. A bit of a loner, but with a tendency to bully, was how an one old primary schoolmate, Colin McDougall, put it. It seems like that Black didn't mix in with the normal playground ga- games. He preferred to spend his time with children younger than himself, who he could easily dominate. As Colin McDougall also remembers, we had a gang, but he insisted on being the leader of his own gang. The members were always a couple of years younger than him. Another classmate named Jimmy Menz remembers an incident where Black gave a boy with an artificial leg a beating. Oh, no. Did he beat him with his own leg? I don't know. He gave the poor laddie a terrible hammering. He just jumped on top of him as he was walking over the bridge to school one day. Black just punched and kicked him for no reason. That's awful. I'm so sorry. That's the most (laughs) awful freaking act. I'm so sorry. (laughs) I'm sorry for anybody who had to hear that. Sudden, mindless violence perpetrated against those physically less able than himself was typical of Black as a boy. As he grew older, his reputation as a bit of a ruffian grew. The local Bobby, Sandy Williams, later said that Black was a wild wee laddie who didn't give a dime, no respect for authority. He had a dangerous spirit, you know. And needed a smack around the ear to keep him in line. <laughs> Having said this, and that's exactly how he said it. <laughs> Probably not. In the period that he was living with the tulips, Robert never really got himself into any serious trouble. He had childish fights, played up at school, and bullied the younger children. Yet he seemed to avoid anything more serious than a rebuke from Williams for swearing in front of the ladies. In addition to this propensity for violent outburst, Black was also developing a precocious sexual self-awareness. Years later, Black remembers the emergence of a practice which he began while he was living with the tulips and would continue and intensify as he matured. Mm-hmm. I used to push things up my anus, Black told Wire. 
I started when I was eight years old. Those are one of the things that you should not tell people. Or do, maybe. Unless you're going to become a serial killer. Yeah. When asked what objects he would use, Black replied, holding his fingers about eight inches apart, that it was usually a little piece of metal, and at one time, some xylophone sticks. After his arrest in 1990, police found photographs that Black had taken of himself. One showed him with a wine bottle up his anus. Oh my God. Another with a telephone handset. How do you fit that? Yet another was with a table leg up his anus. Oh my God. How is he not dead? Black explained to the incredulous officers that he wanted to see just how much he could fit up there. Oh, wow. Have you seen um, 13 wow. Reasons on why I think where they showed the broomstick Stick. handle up his bum? Yeah, but that's... He don't have nothing on, no. on him. At around the same age, Black also remembers fantasizing about excreting on his hands, which would that mean... disgusting. Okay, crapping. Get out the way. On uh-huh. his hands and then rubbing the feces in. That is freaking nasty. Who like lotion. That? That's disgusting. He, al- he also always had an uneasy feeling that he would have preferred to have been a girl. Although there was certainly nothing feminine about his behavior, he simply hated his penis and would have preferred to have had a vagina because then he would have had two holes to stick stuff up. (laughs) I'm just, that's my opinion. Yeah. I'm no psychologist, but I'm just saying. Yeah. There's the front, there's the back. (laughs) We have here a nice inversion of the usual Freudian model, wherein women envy men the presence of the penis, whereas the lack or absence of the penis that Black experienced all of his life was that of the vagina. His lifelong practice of self-penetration seems to have been an enactment of this vagina envy. So people that young, young fellers or young laddies that insert stuff into their anus at a young age have vagina envy. Are you, are, why? That is what it is said. I'm just saying what the psychologist says. (laughs) But he was by no means homosexual in his desires. Not only did his autoerotic sex life began early, so did his experimentation with the opposite sex. His first sexual experience, which is one of his first memories, was when he was only five. Uh, Have you ever wanted a vagina? Nope. I've thought about it, but I was like, nah, I'm good. Nah, never thought about it. (laughs) I'm good. (laughs) Always enjoyed having my penis. Yeah. Black vividly recalls himself and a little girl undressing and looking at each other's sexual parts. Then at the age of seven, at his Highland dance classes, he remembers being far more interested in lying on the floor and looking up the girl's skirts than dancing. What a creep. 
At the age of eight, while looking after a neighbor's baby, he took off her nappy to look at her vagina. I know not. Yes. Both vaginas and anuses fascinated him. And he was obsessed with discovering how big they were and how much they could hold. Are you serious? Weren't they babies? Any vagina and anus. Could you please get Tucker? I mean, he's being so freaking annoying. It is interesting to speculate what he was looking for. He's trying to bite my face off. What he was looking for. What could the orifice... What could the orifices hold that he might discover? To search the vagina for some large hidden content is like a regressive version of the fantasy of searching for the origins of the self. Mm -hmm. If one looks up there, knowing how much it would hold, might one not encounter the ultimate secret, the baby, or oneself? For one who had never known his parents, had never had access to his birth murder, mother, and may subsequently have been abused, what a compelling obsession this would be to look into the darkness to see what it might have contained. That, again, is Dr. Wire. Well, wow. All right. There is the further fascination, of course, with the anus, which may be thought of as the thanatos to the eros of the vagina. Mm-hmm. But a child's first fantasies are cloacal. Was that the hole? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> it might be just the hole. It is the hole that fascinates. Huh? And the functions are not so closely de- differentiated. Wait. Differentiated. Yes, differentiated in an infantile fantasy. As the child grows mo- more self-aware, the anus, of course, is differentiated differentiated as the remover of waste. Well, though it may continue to exercise its old childish fascination, so much so that Freud calls an entire personality type formed around a matrix of characteristics such as tightness and the tendency to withhold emotion, the anal personality type that Black was universally characterized as messy and smelly his entire adult life also suggests some further manifestation of his compulsion to play about with the dirty part of himself. I would call you an anal personality. (laughs) Thanks. (laughs) I'm just kidding. Thanks. Did you understand all that? Yes. Did you not? Well, I was getting lost. I mean, it is Freud. It is Freud. No, I understood until we got to anal personality. Oh, that's Freud. Just weird stuff. Freud was very weird. Yeah. Margaret Tulip died in 1958. It was the worst possible thing that could have happened. Black was only 11 and was once again deprived of a mother. Although a local couple offered to take him in, it was decided that Black would go to the Reading Children's Home near Falkirk, closest to the place of his birth. It was during Black's time there that his fascination with sex, and particularly with the vagina, 
finally drove him across the line from childish experimentation to criminal behavior. The fascination with the secret of birth, the hidden contents of the womb, was clearly exaggerated by the loss of the second mother. At the age of 12, Black made his first inept attempt at rape. He told Dr. Wire, Me and two other boys went into a field with a girl the same age. We took her knickers off, lifted her skirt, and all tried to put our penises in. Wow. Finding that they couldn't complete the act of penetration, the boys contented themselves instead with touching the girl's vaginas with their fingers. When asked if she was consenting to this, Black told Dr. Wire, I was forcing her, like, you know. The incident was exposed and authorities decided that Black would be better suited to a home with stricter discipline, not to mention an all-male environment. Black was on the move again, this time to the Red House in Musselburgh. Here, having been sent away as an abusive bully and potential rapist, Black swiftly found that he had changed roles. For at least a year, possibly two out of the three that Black was at the Red House, a male member of staff, now dead, regularly sexually abused him. The man's custom, apparently, when the time approached for his current victim to leave, was to force him to recommend another boy to take his place. Robert Black was recommended Black later described the form that the abuse took. The man, he said, made me put his penis in my mouth. Touch him, you know. He did try to booger me once, but he, <laughs> but he couldn't get an erection. <laughs> Even before his time at the Red House, Black had associated sex with dominance and submission. This association was now cemented in his mind. Now, in the position of victim himself, he empathized and identified with his abuser. From the abuse perpetrated upon him, Black concluded that it was acceptable to take what you wanted without regard to other people's feelings. During this time, Robert had obtained a place at Musselburgh Grammar School. He was slightly above. He was slightly above average academically, but it was sport that he was really interested in, especially football, swimming, and athletics. When he later moved to London in his early 20s, he was given a trial for infield town. Unfortunately, his poor eyesight put a career in professional football beyond his reach. His love of swimming continued throughout his adult life, and he even worked as a lifeguard for a time which was ideal fuel for his pedophilic fantasies. As a boy at the Red House, Robert often walked from Musselburgh to nearby Portobello, where there were two swimming pools in which he would practice. Over 20 years later, a little girl called Caroline Hogg was to be abducted from Portobello and later murdered. Caroline's house in the summer of 1962, when Black was 15, his time at the Red House was up. 
With some help from the authorities, Black got a job as a delivery boy and found a room to rent in a boy's home in Greenock, outside of Glasgow. He later admitted that while he was doing his delivery rounds, he molested 30 or 40 girls. He told Dr. Wire that if there was a girl on her own in the flats where he was delivering, that he would like to sit down and talk to her for a few minutes, like, you know, and try and touch her. Sometimes succeeded and sometimes not. Amazingly, none of this behavior seems to have been officially reported. And it was not until a year later that Black's first conviction came about. The charges were for lewd and libidinous, libidinous behavior with a young girl. It should have been for attempted murder. Black, who was now 17, had approached a seven-year-old girl in the park, asking her if she would like to go with him to see some kittens. Classic. Really? The girl trustingly following, followed him as he led her to a deserted building. Don't go looking for puppies or kittens or candy. Or ice cream. Yeah. Or chewing gum. Yeah. Black told Dr. Wire that, quote, I took her inside and I held her down on the ground with my hand around her throat. I must have half strangled her or something because she was unconscious. When she was quiet, I took, I took her knickers off and I lifted her up so that I was holding her behind her knees and her vagina was wide open and I poked my finger in there once, unquote. How old was she? Seven. Good God. He then laid her down on the floor and masturbated over her lifeless body. Her lack of consciousness, far from detracting from his pleasure, actually enhanced his pleasure. When he left the girl in that nasty building, he didn't know or care whether she was unconscious or dead. She was later found wandering the streets, bleeding, crying, and confused. <clears throat> the case was brought to court, and astoundingly, Black was given an admonishment. So we got off. A verdict particular to Scottish law, which is effectively no more than a warning to be on good behavior in the future. So, yes. Wow. Like a slap on the wrist. The psychiatric report had been pre prepared for the court, and it said that the event was an isolated one and highly unlikely to recur. Yeah, right. Not for him. Thus, by the time he was 17, Black had attempted to rape one girl, left another for dead, molested many others, and got away with it. Yeah. Unlike the psychiatric report, however, the social services probation report viewed the incident as more serious. And it was decided that Black should leave Green Knock and return to Grangemouth to make a new start. Here he got a job with Builder Supply Company and rented a room with an older couple. He also met his first and last real girlfriend. According to Black, Pamela Hodgson, and he fell in love, developed a sexual relationship, and decided to get engaged. Years later, he still remembers the devastation he felt when he later arrived, when a letter arrived from Pamela after some months telling him that it was over. 
Perhaps she had heard some of the gossip that was circulating about her boyfriend and his sexual preferences for little girls. Or maybe she was beginning to experience some of his sexual preferences firsthand. In 1992, after Black had been served with 10 summons, including three for the murder of three little girls, in an attempt to shift the moral responsibility, he told officers, tell Pamela she's not responsible for all this. This, of course, implied the opposite, that the breakup of their relationship had left him so devastated that she had driven him to murder. Mm-hmm. Although Black claims that while he was seeing Pamela, he did not molest any girls, he was forced to leave Grangemouth for just that. Black's mounting obsession with little girls and his fascination with their vaginas would not have disappeared during his relationship with Pamela, although he may have had less opportunity to act out his desires. But they resurfaced in 1966. This time, the victim was the nine-year-old granddaughter of his landlord and landlady. The abuse took the same form as it had previously with Black looking at, touching, and putting his fingers inside the girl's vagina. She eventually told her parents, yet it was decided that the police would not be called. Screw those parents. It was felt that the girl had been through enough, and Black was ordered to leave the house. Really? Gossip spreads quickly in small towns. Sacked from his job without reason and his place in the community, Black headed back to Kenlockleven, where he had been brought up. Again, he took a room with a couple who had a young daughter, and again, the same thing happened. It was a seven-year-old girl, and she was subjected to the same type of digital intrusion that was typical of Black's behavior. When the abuse came to light, Black was not so fortunate as he had been in Grangemouth. The police were called this time to deal with the situation. In March of 1967, Black was found guilty on three counts of indecent assault and sentenced to a year of borstal training to be served at Polmont near Grangemouth. On his release, Black had tired of Scotland, where he was getting too well known, and where his police record was growing, it was time to go south to the anonymity of London. Although he avoided any criminal convictions in the 70s, his obsession with young girls was growing, fueled by his discovery of child pornography. In the 1970s, Black discovered that magazines such as Teenage Sex and Lolita's were clandestinely available particularly in places like Amsterdam, where the pornography laws are less stringent. When Black's room was eventually searched by police in the 1990s, they found over a hundred child pornography magazines and over 50 child pornography tapes, with titles such as Lesbian Lolita. What? When Dr. Wright asked Black what he thought the age of consent should be, Black replied that someone had once told him that his motto was, when they're big enough, they're old enough. Pure sick. So when is big enough? Not big enough. Yeah. When he first arrived in London, Black lived in cheap bedsits and took casual work there where he could find it 
His favorite job was that, of course, of a swimming pool attendant, where he sometimes was able to go underneath the pool and remove the lights to look at the little girls as they swam. At night, he used to break into the baths and swim links with a broom handle lodged up his butt. Okay. He would swim with a broom up his butt. Wow. That would be a sight. (laughs) It wasn't long before Black became the subject of a complaint from a girl who claimed that he had touched her. The police were called, but Luck was on Black's side, and despite his record, he was not charged with any criminal offense, although he lost his job. When he was not working, Black had developed a liking for darts and was a distinctly useful player. Most of his spare time was spent in pubs drinking, but not heavily, Mm -hmm. playing in various dart teams or doing part-time bar work. Although he enjoyed going to pubs, Black never made any good friends as he was a solitary man. Michael Collier, the former landlord of the Bearing Arms in Islington, where Black played for the pub team, recalls, For the years that he drank in my pub, you would never have called him a mate. He always drank pints of Lager, Shandy, but he never got involved in rounds. When he wasn't playing darts, he just stood by the fruit machine. He was a bit of a wind-up merchant and enjoyed irritating people, particularly women. He never talked about himself, and he never spoke about his interest or joined in conversations. The former world darts champion, Eric Bistro, who knew Black from the amateur dart circuit in North London, similarly remembers him as a loner who never turned up with any girlfriend or anything. Black met Eddie and Kathy Rayson in a pub in Stanford Hill in 1972. They got chatting, and Black told them how he needed a place to live. Well, the Rayson's attic room was free, and although Eddie wasn't too keen initially, Kathy said that Black seemed like a big softy. So they decided to take him in. After Black's convention in 1994, Eddie Rayson remembered Black as a perfect tenant. He always paid the rent on time and never caused any problems. He used to eat meals with the couple and their children, who had nicknamed him Smelly Bob. Oh, wow. And they occasionally went up to his room to listen to music or play cards. But other than that, they rarely saw him. Although Eddie Rayson says that he was a bit like a father to him, Black never talked to him about personal matters or his past. Eddie and Kathy's son, Paul, says of Black, he was a bit odd, and as kids growing up, we called him names mainly because he smelt so darn bad. But he was an ideal tenant. Okay. In fact, he was more than just a tenant, but not what you would call a friend. Not the sort of person you would ever be able to get close to or would want to. Yeah. The Rayson said that Black was a keen photographer, I bet he was, and they sometimes jokingly called him David Bailey, whoever that is. I'm sorry, I don't know who that is. David Bailey. Yeah. It later transpired that one of his favorite pastimes was to go to the seaside or a playground, which was frequented by young children and video them playing or take snapshots of them. That's not weird. It's sick. 
Photography not only serves as a source of images that can be chosen to excite, but it also frequently is used in a documentary sense to provide the killer with a chronicle of his own history. In 1976, Black began to work for a firm called Poster Dispatch and Storage, or PDS, as a driver. PDS could stand for a piece of dumb shit. <laughs> His job was to deliver posters to various depots around England and Scotland. It was ideal work for him. He was a bad timekeeper, so it suited him to keep basically to his own schedule. And as a loner, he found driving for hours by himself an agreeable way to earn a living. He worked for PDS for the next 10 years until his employers were forced to dismiss him as he was constantly getting involved in minor car accidents. Probably from sticking stuff up his anus while yeah, driving. What does that have to do? Oh. He was a driver for him. Yeah, okay. Right. And it cost them a bunch of insurance. Yeah. Paying, paying, yeah. Luckily for Black, shortly after his dismissal from PDS, was brought was bought out by two employees who gave him his job back. He continued to get into scrapes and little car accidents, probably from putting stuff up his anus. Yeah. But he was a hard worker. I bet he was. <laughs> and he was always glad to cover for his workmates. Doing the longer runs, which he, which the other drivers disliked as they interfered with their family commitments, Black frequently did the London to Scotland run, often stopping in the Midlands on his way back to see the racing son, John, and his new family. In the back of his van, he would keep various objects as masturbatory tools mm -hmm. to be inserted up his anus while he fantasized about touching young girls. As I said, that's probably how he... Yeah. yeah. He later told police that he would get into the back of his van on night runs and dress himself in girls' clothing, <laughs> particularly swimming costumes, while he masturbated. He told Dr. Wire that over the years, the recollection and image of the assault in which he had left the seven-year-old girl for dead kept returning. The assault would have been replayed and replayed in Black's mind. So often that when it finally drove him to the first murder, it seemed a perfectly natural thing for him. But his fantasy was never totally fulfilled the deep anger and frustration never finally was resolved, and tragically, the cycle of his fantasies and murder repeats. The FBI maintained that serial killers actually murder because of their thought processes, which constitute their motivation. Fantasy assumes a crucial role in sexual murders. The further question of what causes the fantasy remains. Fantasies and thought processes must be caused by something, and we must assume that the origins are to be found in their personal histories. The reality of Robert Black as a child, the double loss of the mother, the lack of the father, his feelings of rejection, of being unloved, the constant moving from place to place, and his sexual abuse from an older adult 
meant to be in the role of carer and protector, was a reality, so devoid of either love or hope that fantasies involving domination and the perverse search for the lost mother-child are understandable. I don't think so. I disagree with that. Yeah. However. Because you can have the same situation as him and come out and do fine in life. Yep. It's all about, I guess, how your mom works. Yep. Anyway, he died. He didn't even go to prison. He died. Really? Mm-hmm. How did he die? Natural causes. Wow. That's pretty messed up. He didn't. Pretty sucky. All through his life, he never got punished. He for never anything. got punished for anything. No. Well, that—that's my story. Depressing as usual. Well, duh. Most all of ours are depressing. I know. I hope y'all enjoyed today. <laughs> but I'm just gonna say that if you did enjoy it. Go to our website. You might need some help. I'm just kidding. <laughs> you don't need help unless you stick things up your anus all the time. Yeah. While driving. You're not even supposed to hold your cell phone. At least you have to put stuff up your anus while driving. It's yes. dangerous. Yeah. Well, this has been Bad in the Boondocks. And I've been Stan. And I've been Jeru. Till next time. See, See y'all, y'all later. later. <laughs>